Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, Grant Memorial. Good morning. Uh, some of you are aware that uh, Mission Fest has been happening this weekend. How many uh, here had the opportunity to get out to Mission Fest this weekend? Okay, I, I think that's a number of hands. I'm convincing myself of that. I can't see very well with the lights. So uh, I'm glad if you've had a chance to get out there uh, to Mission Fest. Um, that, uh, yeah, I, I know that you have felt enriched uh, by it. And if you haven't yet, there's still a session this afternoon. Um, and so I encourage you to, uh, to head over to Church of the Rock and uh, be encouraged and to be uh, challenged. Now, um, one of the privileges that we have as a church that supports and sponsors Mission Fest is that we have access to um, kind of glean the wisdom from Mission Fest here on Sunday morning. And so um, this morning we have uh, one of the keynote speakers from Mission Fest with us this morning. And so hailing from uh, balmy Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, but originally from Amsterdam, Netherlands, we have Aaron Pierce uh, with us this morning. Now, Aaron serves as the, in, as the International Mission Director at uh, Steger International, a global mission organization dedicated to mobilizing followers of Jesus, that's us, to reach young people who would not themselves walk into a church. Uh, Aaron is author of the book, Not Beyond Reach, a practical, action-oriented book that equips readers to reach young people. And I've had the opportunity uh, to read the majority of it over the last couple of days and uh, have found that it's particularly good at defining the state of our post-Christian culture uh, here in North America and uh, how the gospel can speak into it through God's people. And so the book is available uh, in the foyer. And one of the uh, benefits of being at the 9 o'clock service is you have first crack at them. Uh, and so I encourage you to head over to the book table, pick one up, and if nothing more than just to understand how is it that, that I can understand the culture that my, you know, that we're living in, that my kids are living in, that my grandkids are living in, and how can we as a church speak into that. So I encourage you to uh, pick that up and, uh, and talk with Aaron and, uh, and Dan, who will be back there as well. At a personal level, Aaron's most important role is as husband to Jennifer and father of four, Asher, Selah, Hudson, and Wesley. And so would you help me in giving a warm welcome to our guest this morning, Aaron Pierce. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. So good to be here. Just getting set up here. All right. Cam, thank you so much for the introduction. So good to be here. Uh, I am very excited. You know, we've been praying um, since we've been in, in the Winnipeg area for a few days and just praying. And, and I sense that, that God wants to do something new in Winnipeg. And we've been praying that God would stir the hearts of believers in Winnipeg and that we would see God uh, break out and do something new in this region and to begin to reach the culture. Many young people are walking away from the church. That's our heart. And, and I just want you to you know, a couple days ago, I spoke to the youth at the Missions uh, Fest, and there's about 800 youth. And at, at the end of the night, 150 of them were at the front of the stage on their knees praying, just asking God, send me into the harvest. And, and, there, and then yesterday as well, we, we had a real, there's just God's moving. And so I'm praying and believing that God is going to do something new in the Winnipeg area. And I believe he wants to have you be part of it as well. 
Like he's called all of us to play a role in that. Now, uh, just I'm going to just do a quick little introduction. I know um, Cam did already, but I, I feel like when I travel and I don't have my family with, I always need to introduce them anyway. Uh, so I got a picture here. This is my family. Uh, I have one wife and four kids, which is the right way to do it, I'm told. Uh, my wife is the rock of our family. I could not do what we do. We travel. It's a very uh, crazy missional life. And if it wasn't for her and the strength that God has given her, we could not do what we do, but then I have four kids, three boys and a girl, and they're ages four, seven, nine, and 11, so we're kind of in the sweet spot. No babies, no teenagers. Life is good right now. We'll see how long that lasts, though. Uh, so God has called me uh, to lead uh, this mission organization called Steiger International, and uh, it's interesting. You might be going, what is this word Steiger? That's kind of a weird word, and the, the reason we're called Steiger is because Steiger is a Dutch word. And our organization started in Amsterdam, in, in Europe, in the Netherlands. And it was founded by my parents uh, who were missionaries in Amsterdam. And they had a heart to reach young people of the city that wouldn't walk into a church, which in a city like Amsterdam, I mean, that's pretty much all young people. They see these big, beautiful cathedrals. And often they are literally museums closed on Sunday. And that's their view of God, that it's not relevant to their lives. It's a tradition of the past. And so that was the context that my parents were in, and they had a burden to bring Jesus to these people. And so what would happen, it started out, my dad would take a small group of people, a very small group, so like a handful of people, and they would go to the bars and the clubs and different places, and they would befriend people. And they would get to know them and they would share Jesus with them. And then they would write down the names of everyone that they met. And they would go out into the forest outside the city and they would pray all night over these people. And they would say, God, we need a breakthrough in the city. We need you to move in this city. And I, I think that's a similar cry for a city like Winnipeg. We need a breakthrough in this city. And so they were praying and they were saying, God, show us how we can share your love and your truth to this, to this city. And so this was in the 80s. And this was the height of the punk rock movement. Now, I can tell by looking at you that many of you, too, were part of the punk rock movement. So you understand. Now, this was in the 80s. And so my dad was saying, how can we share the gospel effectively? And so he felt like he should start a punk band. Makes sense. As a way to share Jesus in their places. And to use the stage to lift up the message of the cross. Paul said in, 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, that he preached Christ in him crucified so that people would not be convinced by human wisdom, but by God's power. And what people in Amsterdam and what people in Winnipeg need today is not human wisdom, but by God's power. And the power of God is in the message of the cross. And so they lifted up the message of the cross using their band in these places. And suddenly they had many people responding to the gospel. And they're like, what do we do with all of them? So what they did is they started a Bible study on a big red boat. I've got a picture here that you can see uh, at the top right corner there. That's the picture of the big red boat. Like, you know, it's a houseboat. So like hundred people can fit on it. And it became a Bible study reaching young people of Amsterdam. And the address of that boat was Pier. 
Pier 14, the Dutch word for pier is Steiger. So they named their Bible study, which became a church, the address, Steiger 14. And it was located right behind the central train station. And, and so this became a church reaching young people of Amsterdam that would normally have nothing to do with Christianity. And it was a powerful environment that I grew up in. And then this band that my dad started, started to go to other places. He, they went to communist Poland and the Soviet Union and all sorts of different places where they would share Jesus. And, and that was the environment I grew up in. My dad would take me and my little brother on tour with him with the band. And so we'd be in some tough nightclub in Eastern Europe somewhere. And during the concert, he would bring me and my little brother. You can see us right there in the bottom right corner. He'd bring us on stage and he would say, these are my sons. I love them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Everything that I have is theirs. If someone tried to hurt my sons, I would protect them with my life. And then he would say, and that is how God feels about you. And he would equate a father's love for his, for his children with God's love for them. And I saw tough people with tears in their eyes praying to receive Jesus in these environments. And when you see God move like that as a child, it ruins you in the best possible way. Because you see that God is not just this nice religious activity or this thing that we do, but that he is real. And that he has the power to transform lives and so this was the environment that I grew up in. And you know, it's interesting because I grew up in, in Amsterdam, quintessential post-Christian context. It was the air that I breathed. And when you consider the context in much of the West today, including Canada, we, we find ourselves in a very similar environment today. You know, many people have been exposed to Christianity, but many have walked away and we now live in a true post-Christian culture. Um, sorry, skip ahead here. Oh, there we go. We now live in a very post-Christian culture in which many young people in particular are walking away from the church. You know, in the past, many people would identify as Christian, have a positive view of the church, but now the fastest growing religious group in Canada is the religiously unaffiliated. And so these are, these are atheists, certainly, and agnostic, but also, and mainly, just nothing in particular, right? And that is, that is the vast majority now, of, or it's the fastest growing religious group in the country, and it's especially pronounced, most pronounced, in, in the younger generations, in Gen Z, where actually nearly half of Gen Z would say they're religiously unaffiliated, and nearly two-thirds of young adults who grew up in the church have walked away. And so this is a challenge, and this is not, of course, just statistics and trends, this is personal, right? These are people that we know. These are people in our own families. And, and, it's, and I think it's important to understand that if, if we're going to reach this generation, we need to understand that the context has changed. So let me take, just show you this to illustrate this. Uh, back in, and this is a U.S. St statistics, but it, it plays the same in Canada. Back in 1990, 86% or the vast majority of people would say, I'm a Christian. And they would have a positive view. If you look at the spectrum, they would have a positive view towards the church. They saw the church as an important part of society, as it, the Bible is a good moral guide. And it was in that context that Billy Graham could fill a stadium. And people would come and you would say, you know, the Bible says and it resonated and it connected. It was very relevant for that cultural time. But what's happened over the last 30 years 
or so, particularly amongst the younger generation, is the rise in the religiously unaffiliated, and with that, a change in attitude. It's gone from predominantly positive to increasingly apathetic, don't really care, to outright hostile. And that is the post-Christian shift that we have experienced in our country and in the West. And the challenge for us is we need to think differently. The gospel doesn't change, but the way we communicate to a culture needs to change if the culture is different. And the challenge is the majority of our evangelistic efforts today are geared towards the nominal. By nominal, I mean I identify as a Christian, but maybe I'm not really walking as a follower of Jesus. And so it's kind of come and see, bring your friend. And that's good. We shouldn't stop doing that. But there are an increasing number of people on the right side of the spectrum, probably people you can identify in your own family right now, who will not come to our church event, no matter how cool and attractive we make it. The paradigm shift here is we cannot wait for them to come to us. We've got to go to them. We need to bring the love of Jesus to them, to where they are. Essentially, we need to become cross cultural missionaries to our own people in our own cities. This is, this is the time that we're in. And what does it mean to be a missionary? I grew up as a missionary kid. And if, if, if you think about it, if you were called to be a missionary to China, what would you have to do? Well, you need, the, the whole idea of a missionary is I need to communicate the gospel message in a way that it's understood. Right? So I need to understand the language. I need to understand the philosophies and the influences so that I can contextualize the gospel for this particular culture. All of that is true also for reaching a secular post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in. We need to communicate the gospel with relevance, and relevance does not mean we compromise. Relevance does not mean we water it down or make it more palatable. Relevance means we make it clear so that it's understood. And that's our challenge today. And we need to understand the cultural context that we're in. And I want to tell you, and I'm going to make it very clear, there are challenges, but there is hope as well. Because this is a generation that is searching and hungry, and they're looking for answers. Now, many of them are not looking to the church, but they are searching for Jesus. And so we just need to go to them and communicate it. And, and, and I want you to know that you can reach your grandparents, your grandkids, that they are not beyond reach, that you have influence in their life. And one of the lies of the enemy is to tell you that, that you have no influence, so you might as well just give up. And that is a lie. And I want to encourage you that today. But part of that is we need to understand the cultural context that, our, that our, the younger generation is growing up in. So the religion of our day 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the, the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age is something called secular humanism, the religion of self. And the idea here is that God has been replaced. Man is at the center, and there is no outside authority that can tell me how to live my life. It's the era of my truth and identity, purpose, and morality is all self-constructed. And so, so it's, if you think about all the things that we're dealing with in culture and, and, and all that, it's an outworking of a worldview that says, no one can tell me how to live my life. And so if you pay attention, you see the message of secular humanism everywhere. For example, this is an Instagram post 
by a guy called Jay Shetty. He's a popular self-help guru that like connects with all the beautiful people. And he says, the rules are fake. Do what you want. Listen to how you feel and make decisions that honor your soul. That's secular humanism. Or here's another one. This is a a poster at a Starbucks uh, that says, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. Quoting Lady Gaga. That is secular humanism. And it sounds so good. It sounds so liberating. But the reality is that the consequences of this worldview are, are, are devastating. It's like poison wrapped in bubble gum, right? It looks all sweet and shiny on the outside, but it, it actually destroys. To give you an example of this, a while back, a friend of mine from high school, a non-Christian friend, uh, he posted on social media that his son, his, his, his young son, which is about the same age as my son, my oldest, had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And when I read, when I read that post, I mean, I was, it, it really shook me. And I couldn't imagine the pain and the fear and the anger that he was feeling in that moment with this little boy was diagnosed with brain cancer. And then, and then I, I began to read some of the comments on his post. And he was getting things like positive vibes, Sending healing vibes his way. Sending you all positive vibrations and much love. And then eventually he responded and he said, thank you everyone for the supportive words of concern and positive energy you have expressed for my son Peter. And I couldn't help but think about how hopeless it all sounded. Because you see in the secular humanistic worldview, there is no transcendent hope. Just positive vibrations and it's devastating and it's having it's having a massive effect on our culture this is a generation in a culture that is that is devastated and they are confused they're sexually broken they're lonely and they're anxious this is the universal felt need of a generation you know, and it makes sense because, because if you're the source of truth, you're going to be confused. If there are no rules, you're going to be sexually broken. If it's all about me, I'm going to be lonely. And if there's no anchor to hold me in the storm, I'm going to be anxious and depressed. So confused, sexually broken, lonely, anxious. This is the cry of a generation. And this is what should break our heart the most. Even though we have the answers to what they seek, they are not looking to the church. That should break our heart. You know, this, we should respond to this like Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 4, when he said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Our heart should break because you see the extent to which you are going to do something, the extent to which your heart is broken is the extent to which you're going to do something about it. Our hearts need to break. We need God to break our hearts for the lost and to awaken us from our apathy. We need God to move. I look around at the world and I I say, God, there are no human answers. Our human efforts is not enough. We need God to move. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. We don't need more talk. We need God's power. In this time, because the only hope for our world, our country, 
this city, our family, is if God moves supernaturally. And here's the amazing thing, and here's my encouragement to you, is that God loves to move through ordinary people like me and like you. And that he wants to use you to bring hope to this world. Because in Jesus, we have the ultimate answers to the cry of a generation. Jesus brings truth to the confused. He brings healing to the sexually broken. He brings the ultimate relationship with the creator and with the church. And he brings peace that transcends understanding. We have the answers to the cry of a generation. And it's going to mean we've got to go to them. But the reason we're going to go is because our hearts so break. So what does it, what does it mean to have God's broken heart? That's what I want to focus in on here for the rest of my time. What does it mean to have God's broken heart for this generation? Now I'd like to look at uh, the parable of the lost sheep in, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bible, you can pull it out. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15, 1 through 7. I'll read that for you now. Luke chapter 15, 1 through 7 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, so let me try to explain this parable to you a little bit. So first of all, full disclosure, uh, I'm not a shepherd, all right? Uh, I, I actually have never owned a sheep, and maybe some of you have, and so if some of my sheep ideas are off, please don't tell me, okay? Because I've been working on this sermon for a while. I actually kind of stole this sermon from my dad, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, so if anything's wrong, it's his fault. Um, but, but for example, so imagine uh, that you're, you're a shepherd, right? And you have 99 respectable sheep. And there's this one sheep that keeps running away. What is this sheep like? And what is this sheep like? You know, well, this sheep is not like the other sheep. This sheep has strange sheep hair. This sheep listens to strange sheep music and plays strange sheep video games. This sheep doesn't vote the right way. This sheep is always hanging out in bad places. This sheep is always taking the weaker sheep off doing bad sheep stuff. If this sheep could bite, if sheep could bite, this would be a biter sheep. Now, I'm the good shepherd. I have 99 respectable sheep. The best thing I could do is just let this one go. But what does the good shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and goes after 
the sheep. The passage here is really interesting because it illustrates something really critical about lost sheep. Lost sheep are lost, right? That's why they call them lost sheep. And lost sheep go to lost sheep places. They aren't going to come to us and we shouldn't expect them to. We need to follow Jesus' example set before us and go to them. But going after the lost sheep is hard because it forces us out of our comfort zone. So let me give you an example of this. A number of years ago, I was leading an outreach in New Zealand. I I spent some time there, and I was doing some ministry work in the city of Wellington. And New Zealand is a very secular, very progressive country, very similar to Canada in a lot of ways. And we were doing evangelistic work in the city. And one day, when we were doing some outreach, I saw a poster that was promoting an event. And the event was called the Gay Fair. When I saw that poster, I had this check in my spirit. And I felt like God said, I want you to go there. And I want you to show my love to those people. And I was like, well, Lord, I don't even know what that means. I don't know. It's not my, I, I don't have experience with that. And so I felt like God said, no, I want you to be there. So I ended up finding the number of the organizer, calling them up and saying, hey, I'm Aaron. I'm part of this Christian organization. And we'd like to come. And is there anything we could do to come to serve? We'd like to serve you. And they were a little skeptical at first. Um, but I talked, my, I talked them into it, and, and we end up showing up on a Saturday, and what they allowed us to do is to serve water. And so we ended up showing up on the, the gay fair on a Saturday. When we got there, it turned out to be the hottest day of the year. And we were set up right in the middle of the gay fair, and there was, we had on our left, there was a, a strange film company, and then on the right, they were selling some things that I won't mention, and then right in the middle was the Jesus stall which we had set up. And we got cups, and on the cups we wrote, whoever drinks the water I serve or I give will never thirst again, signed Jesus. And it was the hottest day of the year, and we could not get rid of our cups fast enough. Everywhere you look, all over the fair, were people drinking their cups, reading it, and we had hours and hours of conversation with people who considered Christians their enemies who were open to having a conversation about who is Jesus. And we in no way compromised our our moral theological beliefs, but we were there to show love to these people. A few few weeks later, we were doing a a creative performance on the streets in Wellington where we depict the, the message of the cross. And we did our performance, and then afterwards, this guy came up to me and said, I saw you at the gay fair. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And then we had a, we had, but he was like, but no, he was warm. And he had this really, and we began to talk, and he began to share his story, and, and I t- began to show him who, who Jesus is, and, and we developed a friendship. Me and my wife got to know him, and he invited us to come to his place for dinner, and we, we got to know him, and then we began to read the Bible together, and here is a guy who would normally not walk into a church, who would normally believe that Christians are his enemy, reading the Bible with me, because I was willing to go to a lost sheep place. That's what Jesus calls us to do. You know, because Jesus loved lost sheep so much that he was willing to go to lost sheep places. But how do I, how do I sometimes react to places like that, to like the gay fair? Thank you, God, 
that you saved me. And I've heard about the terrible things that happened there. And I want you to know you will never see me there or anyone from my church. But I believe if Jesus had lived in Winnipeg, he would have known the bar owners, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the left-wing, left-wing political activists, and even respectable Christians with hidden sins. He would have known and he would have spent time because he didn't just spend time with sinners, he actually ate with them. This was an unthinkable, intimate act in that culture. In fact, Jesus spent so much time with sinners that the Pharisees accused, of, accused him of being one himself, saying, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So far from calling us to avoid dark places and sinful people as if we're not one of them. Jesus wants to enter into, he, he wants us to enter into the mess like he did. Jesus, was, God is not indifferent to our suffering. God is not indifferent to our, our pain and our mess. In fact, he sent the most precious thing he had in Jesus to enter into our suffering, to take it upon, our, on, upon himself. And we are to call to follow Jesus' example in that. All right, on my lunch break or over the weekend, I'll take some time on my busy schedule and I'll go look for this lost sheep. I'll spend a little time. But you know what? I got, I got things I got to do. I got other responsibilities. I, I got to be reasonable about this, right? I can't, I can't overdo it, right? But what does the good shepherd do? It says he will go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Until he finds it. There's no time limit. Nothing held in reserve. No backup plan. Just total devotion to reaching this lost sheep. That is another critical aspect of having the heart of the good shepherd. We must be willing to go after those that are far from God at great personal cost and sacrifice. Again, when my heart breaks, I will sacrifice. I will change my schedule. I will make room in my life for people because my heart is so broken. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, For we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. If we, if we want to see the city of Winnipeg reached, if we want to see our family restored, it's going to cost us. And it's, it's going to cost us our very lives, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Okay, so what do we do when we find the sheep? You know, we found them now. What do we do? What's our attitude? You stupid sheep. I left 99 respectable sheep to go after you. And if you're really angry, you eat the sheep. Or you tie a rope around its neck and you drag it home, right? But what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd kneels down and he picks up the sheep and carries it home. And this wasn't a clean, fluffy sheep. This was a dirty sheep. Like the prodigal son, it had made a mess of things. But the good shepherd was so overjoyed at having found what was lost. He didn't care. He picked up the sheep, put it on his shoulders, and carried it home. What a stunning picture of God's grace and extravagant mercy. We rebel, he pursues. We disobey, he carries us home. 
The world needs to see followers of Jesus who demonstrate this kind of extravagant mercy. This is the kind of heart we need, the heart of the good shepherd. But here's the thing. No matter how hard we try, no matter, we, we can't change our hearts. We can't manufacture a broken heart. Right? It's not like a workout program. Okay, starting on Monday, I'm going to have the good heart of the good shepherd. No, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can repent. And we can say, God, my heart is cold. I don't care for people like I should. You know, and it's not right. There's even people in my own family that I've grown cold towards. Lord, it's not right. Would you forgive me? And would you give me your heart? And that's a dangerous prayer. Because when you begin to ask God for his broken heart, he will break your heart and then you will begin to see people. Really see people. And you will not be able to remain passive anymore. And so we need God's heart. And the thing is that God, you know, we live in a world that is on fire. People are angry, scared, confused, depressed. And God wants to use you to bring the hope of Jesus to a hurting world. And I can tell you from all my years of ministry experience that we serve a God of power. Nothing is impossible for him. And he loves to use ordinary people like me and like you. And so my challenge for you right now is to respond to this. Respond to what God is doing in your heart. And if you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you in this moment, I want to invite you to respond. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a moment. We're going to just be silent for a moment. And I just want you to pray to God right where you are, saying, God, what do you, please give me your broken heart. And then show me how you want to respond. And like I said earlier, maybe you're a, you're a grandparent and you're, you're seeing the things that are going on in this world and you're just like, I, I don't know if I have hope. And I want you to know that God, we are, God, God wants to use you. And God is, God is, he will use you to reach your grandparents. Don't believe the lie that you don't have an influence in your grandkids' life. God will use you because what this generation is looking for is Jesus. They just don't know it. And so you are placed in their lives. You can be that person, that loving presence in their life that, that prays like crazy for them, who pursues them, meets them on their turf, go, connects them where they are, approaches them with love and mercy, but then when God gives you those opportunities, you speak the truth with love. God will give you those opportunities. So don't believe the lie that there is no hope and that God can't use you. So let's spend a moment right now praying right where you are and ask God to speak to you and ask him to break your heart. So let's spend a moment right now. So, Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. I pray that you would give us the heart of the good shepherd. Lord, that you would break our hearts so much that we would not be able to remain passive. That we would have to go and to pursue the lost sheep. 
Lord, I pray that not only would this just be a moment right now, but Lord, but that burden would burn deep inside of us and it would continue. I pray that these, the burden, first and foremost, would drive us to our knees in prayer, Lord, because we don't have the answers, only you do. But Lord, we're not impressed with ourselves, we're impressed with you, Jesus, and we believe that you will and can reach this generation, Lord. So I thank you for everyone who's here. I pray that you would break their hearts and you would show and reveal to them how you want them to respond. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right, before I wrap it up and bring Cam back up, I just want to say I, I, I don't want to just like stir you up and not give you a resource. So like Cam already mentioned, I have this book, Not Beyond Reach, How to Share Jesus with the Young, Deconstructed, and Non-Religious. It's a practical way to help you respond to the burden that you may feel right now because you can reach this generation. Um, so make sure you pick up a copy. Talk to me and Dan at the back. But I'm so thankful for what God is doing here at this church and this leadership. And I just pray that God would encourage you and use you to reach this next generation. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch. <laughs>